turn once more this morning to Luke chapter 23 again. And in just a moment, we're going to pick up reading in verse 13. So Luke 23, verse 13. Father, as we open your word again, we pray that it would be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. God, that you would teach us, that you would guide us, that you would send the Holy Spirit to illumine our hearts. God, that you would convict us, that you would encourage us, that you would warm our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 23, 13. Pilate summoned the chief priests and the rulers of the people and said to them, You brought this man to me as one who incites the people to rebellion. And behold, having examined him before you, I have found no guilt in this man regarding the charges which you make against him. No, nor has Herod, for see, he sent him back to us. And behold, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. Now he was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. But they cried out all together, saying, Away with this man and release for us Barabbas. He was one who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection made in the city and for murder. Pilate, wanting to release Jesus, addressed them again. But they kept on calling out, saying, Crucify, crucify him. And he said to them the third time, Why, what evil has this man done? I have found in him no guilt demanding death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. But they were insistent with loud voices asking that he be crucified, and their voices began to prevail. And Pilate pronounced sentence that their demand be granted, and he released the man they were asking for who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, but he delivered Jesus to their will. When they led him away, they seized a man, Simon of Cyrene, coming in from the country and placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And following him was a large crowd of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting him. But Jesus, turning to them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, stop weeping for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the tree is green, what will happen When it is dry. I wonder if you ever noticed the trading of places that happened just before Jesus was crucified. We actually see it three different times in these verses. First, Jesus and Barabbas traded places in verse 25. Astoundingly, the criminal went free while the righteous man was condemned. And then in the very next verse, Jesus and this man named Simon of Cyrene also traded places. Jesus came out from under the weight of the cross, and Simon was forced to bear its brunt. And then in verses 27 through 31, Jesus warned the daughters of Jerusalem that they too would someday be taking his place. They too would someday be persecuted and mistreated on his behalf and in his stead. So whether we're looking into the angry and guilty face of the criminal Barabbas or whether we're observing the sweat on Simon's forehead as he walked down the road bent beneath the weight of Jesus' cross, or whether we're watching the tears roll down the cheeks of the daughters of Jerusalem following Jesus in the crowd, this is a passage about trading places with Jesus. And as we said in a negative way last week about Pilate and Herod and the crowds, 
we say again this week that we might just see a bit of ourselves in the faces of the various people in the passage before us. Indeed, this week, and in a positive way, we surely ought to see our faces in the crowd, as it were. You and I ought to be among those who have already traded places with Jesus and who will continue to do so. We ought to be just like the folks in this passage. And I'll unpack that thought as we move along this morning. But with that thought in mind, this idea of trading places all throughout this passage, let's just walk right into the verses and begin observing these various folks who exchanged spots with Jesus. And first of all, we should notice Barabbas, the criminal. Barabbas. There's some historical background that needs unpacking when we come to the biblical accounts about Barabbas, whether it be in Luke's gospel or in any of the other gospels. Because the obvious question that we should ask when we read this, especially given our American understanding of the court and prison system is, why was Pilate even considering releasing Barabbas in the first place? Why was this even part of Pilate's thinking to grant this man a pardon? Well, the answer comes here in verse 17, doesn't it? We're told that Pilate was obliged to release to them at the feast one prisoner. The question then is, why did he have to do that? Let me explain a little bit of the background of that to you. Pilate, of course, was not a Jew. He was a member of the Roman government. But since the Romans had taken Judea for themselves, since they had made it one of the regions of the Roman Empire, the Caesars wanted to have one of their men on the ground in Judea governing the region. For a while there had been Jewish leaders to govern in this area, but that would no longer do, not in Judea and not in other distant Roman outposts, simply to appoint a local man as the governor. No, Rome usually wanted thoroughgoing Romans to be out among the provinces and territories and ruling the various subjects in those realms. And so various members of the Roman ruling class would be shipped out from Rome and its vicinity to the various distant parts of the empire as governors and prefects and centurions and so on. And, of course, at the time of Jesus' death, this man named Pontius Pilate was the chief Roman representative in the territory of Judea. His title was prefect, and that's why the Jewish council brought Jesus to him. Pilate was the final governmental authority in this region. But the question is, why would a Roman prefect be interested in granting clemency to a Jewish criminal like Barabbas? He had come here to rule over the Jews, not to show kindness to him, to them. So why show kindness? And especially to someone like Barabbas who had taken part in a rebellion, verse 19. It was, in fact, these little rebellions that would crop up that were a large reason why men like Pilate were sent out by the Caesars to places like Judea in the first place. They were sent there to make sure the locals didn't rebel and that the locals maintained their loyalty to the empire. And so that when someone did rebel, Rome usually ruled with an iron fist. And yet, it was at Pilate's suggestion that this rebel named Barabbas had his name moved to the top of the list for potential pardon. Matthew tells us that in the 27th chapter of his gospel. In other words, here in Luke 23, 18, when the people asked that Barabbas be released instead of Jesus, the reason they did that, Matthew tells us, is because Pilate had already proposed Barabbas as an alternate candidate for pardon. Matthew 27, 17. Barabbas' name had already been brought up by the prefect. 
Why don't I release to you Barabbas? Why would Pilate have done that? Why would he have even mulled over the possibility of releasing the kind of man that he had been sent from Rome to deal with in the first place? Well, remember, the answer comes in verse 17. Pilate and perhaps some of the other prefects who had governed before him had adopted a kind of clemency program as a way of appeasing the people and keeping them under control. So every year, while the great Jewish feast of the Passover was ongoing, the Roman prefect would grant pardon to some Jewish prisoner, supposedly as an act of kindness and benevolence from the great empire, but really it was just a political tactic, of course. Rome saw itself as simply throwing a bone to the people in order to keep them a little more submissive, a little more happy, and a little more quiet. But nevertheless, that was the arrangement. Every Passover season, one prisoner went free. But the question is still, why this man? Why Barabbas? You would think a political insurrectionist would be pretty low on Pilate's list of men whom he might want to grant a pardon. And not only was he an insurrectionist, but apparently during that uprising, he had committed murder. So why this man? Why did Pilate push Barabbas to the front of the line in Matthew 27? Why didn't he instead offer to grant pardon to one of the thieves who were going to be crucified later that morning with Jesus? Surely theft is not nearly so serious a crime as rebellion against the empire and murder to boot. So why Barabbas? Why did Pilate choose him? Well, remember that Pilate, spineless though he proved to be, actually knew that Jesus was not guilty as charged. He knew, verse 14, that there was no guilt in this man. And he knew certainly, verse 22, that there was no guilt demanding death. And therefore, Pilate actually had hopes, Luke tells us, of getting Jesus out of this mess. And though we're not told for sure what he was thinking, I think we can trace out Pilate's logic. Surely there were other far less hardened criminals that Pilate could have suggested for release. But in Matthew 27, he gave the people the option of either Barabbas, the criminal, the murderer, the insurrectionist, or Jesus. Just those two. That's the choice he presented them. And I think probably he suggested an unlikely candidate like Barabbas because he thought surely the people would choose Jesus, the miracle-working prophet, over a murderer like Barabbas. Well, certainly they had obviously turned against Jesus, but given the choice of Jesus or Barabbas, surely the crowds would reconsider. Surely they'd rather have Jesus let loose into their streets than a man like Barabbas. I think that's what Pilate must have been thinking. And so Pilate proposed a kind of trade-off. I'll tell you what. I'll keep Barabbas here in custody with me, and you can take Jesus into the streets with you. And in many ways, Pilate's move was politically quite a savvy one in many other contexts and climates he may have actually succeeded and the whole melee would have petered out harmlessly that friday morning but Pilate obviously underestimated the power of the priests and the scribes to stir up the people he underestimated the hatred for jesus among the leading people of the jewish nation and at a most fundamental level Pilate underestimated human nature he underestimated how crooked the human heart and mind could be. He probably never dreamed that a Barabbas, a murderer, would be chosen over someone like Jesus. And surely he had no idea that the forces of darkness were also arrayed against this Jesus and working mightily through these crowds. And so his plan backfired, and the people demanded Barabbas. Surprisingly, shockingly, they demanded Barabbas instead of Jesus. 
they exchanged the Son of God for an infamous murderer. And therefore, that day, Jesus and Barabbas traded places, didn't they? And the reason why I take all this time to explain what was really happening is because this judicial swap, this trading of places before the Roman bar of justice is to me one of the most powerful events to take place in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus goes to the cross that Barabbas ought to go to and Barabbas goes free. Isn't that a picture of what the scriptures say happened for each of us who believes? Jesus trading places with Barabbas is a real-life kind of parable. It's a portrait of the gospel. Jesus came into the world. Jesus went to the cross in order that he might trade places with sinners, in order that he might bear the weight of the punishment that we, like Barabbas, actually deserve, and we, like Barabbas, then are turned loose, set free, granted pardon. The gospel message sounds just like Luke 23, 25, doesn't it? The gospel is a trading of places with Jesus. This is what Paul says as well in 2 Corinthians 5.21, doesn't he? He says that God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And it's Barabbas all over again. We're actually the criminals. We're actually the ones who are filled with sin. We, not Jesus, are the ones who know sin so well. We're the ones who deserve to die. And yet God made Jesus to be sin on our behalf and to be punished for that sin on our behalf. And the result is that we, like Barabbas, walk. We become the righteousness of God in him. We are forgiven and made right with God and set free because Jesus died. So at the cross, Jesus traded places with sinners, with Barabbases like you and me. Isn't that a great exchange? Jesus underwent all that we deserve for our sin, and we get the reward that he deserves for his goodness. And it's a marvelous thing. But can you just imagine the surprise that Barabbas must have felt that morning when a soldier came into his cell, maybe kicked him in the side and announced to him that he had been chosen for the prefect's pardon, that he was the one guy that was going to get to go free this Passover season. Perhaps Barabbas even knew about the arrangement, but he had already told himself, there's no way it's going to be me. I mean, Pilate will never let me out. And then the, the man shows up with his keys and opens the cell and he goes free. And he must have said to himself, me? Why me? Surely I'm the least deserving of anyone on this cell block. Why has Pilate chosen me? Why is he pardoning me? And Barabbas probably had no idea what was going on. All he knew was that he didn't deserve what he was getting and that he was getting to go free. And isn't that how we feel when we consider how God has pardoned us? It should be. We should be saying to ourselves all the time, why me? I know my record. I know my heart better than anyone else does. I'm the least likely candidate. Lots of people who, truth be told, were probably better people than me, lived and died, and were never forgiven of sins. So why has God chosen to release me? What have I done to deserve this? Answer, nothing. Nothing. You're just laying in your cell like Barabbas with no hope. And so was I. And all of a sudden, someone came along with the gospel and woke us up and said, you're free. You're free. Just like Barabbas, God has freed you and I from the justice that we deserve only because someone else, someone far more deserving than we, was handed over and traded in and hung up where we deserve 
to be. And what an amazing trade it is. And let me say this as well before we leave Barabbas. Our trading places with Jesus, unlike that which took place under the jurisdiction of Pilate, was no accident. The reason we get to go free is not because someone's plan backfired, is it? No. God is not like Pilate. Pilate was trying to set Jesus free and inadvertently, without realizing what he was doing, actually did something that worked out well. But God is not like that. God, unlike Pilate, was not trying to set Jesus free early that Friday morning, was he? He was intentionally, consciously turning his son over so that you and I might go free. So yes, Barabbas traded places with Jesus as kind of a political calculation gone wrong. But you and I trade places with Jesus as a result of God's gospel calculation gone exactly, perfectly, wonderfully right. God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God made him who knew no sin to trade places with those who knew nothing but sin. That's the good news. And it is portrayed startlingly and beautifully here in this pardon granted gifted to Barabbas. So let me just ask you, do you know this great exchange? Is this reality in your life? Have you experienced this? It's wonderful to hear about, but has it actually happened to you? Have you awoken and found yourself looking to Jesus and seeing what he's done for you and going free? This is the trade that God has made on behalf of everyone who believes. Jesus goes to the cross and we criminals go free, but do you believe? Do you believe that you really are like Barabbas, deserving God's judgment? And have you entrusted your life to this Jesus who absorbed God's judgment for you? And if not, would you? Today is the day for you to finally go free. You may even find yourself surprised like Barabbas. You may be sitting here this morning and going, boy, I never expected that this is what would happen. I never expected that this is what would be said to me this morning. Well, neither did Barabbas. But I guarantee you when someone told him, you get to go free, he got up and he went. And if you're here this morning and you're surprised that someone is telling you that you can be completely exonerated and set free, you just need to get up and you need to go to this Jesus and you need to be free. So would you just trust Jesus today and go free? I hope that you will. What a trade God has made for us. Jesus took Barabbas' place on the cross and yours and mine too, if we believe. But then notice another exchange that was made in this passage. The first one had to do with Barabbas the criminal, and now the second has to do with Simon of Cyrene. Simon of Cyrene. The Apostle John tells us in his gospel that after Pilate had pronounced sentence on Jesus, Jesus went out, quote, bearing his own cross. John 19, 17, bearing his own cross. But here in verse 26, Luke tells us that a man named Simon from the district of Cyrene, modern-day Libya, actually carried the cross behind Jesus. So which is it? Did Jesus carry his own cross or did Simon carry the cross for him? Well, the answer is obviously both. Both. As a general rule, people who were condemned to die in the Roman world were forced to carry their own cross to the place of execution. And so we can surmise that what John is telling us is that when Jesus initially left Pilate's courtyard, at least the horizontal beam of his cross was laid across his back, perhaps the entire thing. 
He went out, John said, bearing his own cross. But somewhere along the way now, Luke is telling us that Jesus laid it down. And none of the gospel writers tell us why he did this. Perhaps most people surmise that given the beating that he had already endured, that he eventually simply was physically unable to carry it one step further. But we don't know that for sure. However, whatever the case may have been, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us now that Jesus laid down his cross and that this African man named Simon was pressed into service and forced to participate in this gruesome parade carrying the cross of Jesus on his own back. So we see that in verse 26. They placed on him the cross to carry behind Jesus. And once again, we have a trading of places, don't we? An exchange. But this exchange is a little different from what we saw in verse 25. Under our first heading, Jesus took Barabbas' place on the cross. But now, here we see Simon of Cyrene taking Jesus' place under the cross. In, in the first heading, it was Jesus serving another by taking their place. But now, in verse 26, it's another serving Jesus by taking his place. So it's a, a little different. The roles are reversed. And what we have here is a reminder that there's more than one exchange that happens in the Christian life, isn't there? The great exchange, of course, was when Jesus laid down his life in our place. But there are other exchanges taking place all along the way. Not only when Jesus stepped in on our behalf, but also when people like Simon step in and perform service on Jesus' behalf. When people take up the burden of Christ's mission and work in the world and work for him and with him. When we, his people, shoulder part of the load. And in that way, isn't Simon's cross-bearing also a kind of real-life parable? Simon was doing for Jesus what every true servant of God ought to do. Simon was bearing some of the weight of Jesus' mission on his own shoulders. Or to put it even more simply, Simon was doing something on Jesus' behalf. It's really that simple. And isn't that what all people who love the Lord desire to do? Now, I know that when we do something for Jesus, it's actually the spirit of Jesus working in us that accomplishes that work. I understand that apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. And therefore, as I've often pointed out to you, there's a sense in which we actually can't do anything for Jesus. We can't do anything that he's not already doing through us, right? And so we could say that about Simon. He couldn't have carried that cross had God not given him the health and the strength to do it, right? We all understand that. But what we also need to understand is that using the strength that God supplied, it was actually Simon who carried the weight of the cross, wasn't it? And so it must be for us. Yes, Christ must work through us, but the fact remains that we must work. We must serve the Lord and shoulder part of the load. And in some ways, that work is a kind of trading places with Jesus, even for us. Because Jesus is no longer physically in the world, is he? And so if someone is going to lay hands on the sick and pray for them, or if someone is going to share the good news with an audible voice, or if someone is going to place bread in the hands of hungry people, it's not going to be Jesus himself physically doing that work, is it? No. He's left the world. His hands, his feet, his lips are now in heaven, not on the earth. And yes, I know that he sent his Holy Spirit to come and minister in his place, but the Spirit doesn't have hands and feet and lips either, does he? 
And so the Spirit very often, not always, but very often works through our lips and our hands and our feet. And so there's a very real sense in which we, the church, are standing in Jesus' place here on earth. We're not standing in his place as substitute saviors, of course, but we are standing in his place as substitute servants, just like Simon. Simon wasn't going to save anyone by carrying that cross out to Golgotha, was he? No, Jesus is the only Savior. And yet someone had to carry the cross for the Savior. Someone had to be his hands and his feet and his shoulders in those crucial moments. And so Simon stepped in and Simon did the job. And the same must be true of us. None of us, of course, have even the remotest capability of saving anyone from their sins. Only Jesus can do that. But someone has to speak for Jesus. Someone has to show practical love in his name. Someone has to clean the building and pay the light bill so that people can come into this building and hear the good news when they come. And so Jesus is no longer on the earth, and yet there are still services to be rendered in the kingdom of God for Jesus. And the way that happens is almost exclusively through God's people with the help of the Spirit shouldering the load. And so the church is, in a strange sort of way, standing in the place of Jesus here in this earth. And therefore, in light of Simon's example, let me just ask you, what is it that you ought to be carrying for Jesus? What load ought you to be shouldering for him? In what ways ought you to be using your hands and your feet and your shoulders and your lips and your talents and your time for the cause of Christ in this world? Is there something that you know that you need to begin to do? It's no accident that Paul calls the church the body of Christ because we are the hands and feet and tongues that carry crosses and hand out cold cups of water and speak the truth in love and mow the church grass and earn the tithe money and work in the nursery and teach the Bible and so on. It's us that does that. We, like Simon of Cyrene, are God's appointed servants in the right place at the right time to stand in and do the very things that Jesus was doing before he left this world. But are we doing them? And for you, the question, if you are doing them, is are you doing them well and with the right attitude? Think about that with me. What a privilege Simon had that day on the streets of Jerusalem, wasn't it? A privilege? I'm sure it didn't seem like much of a privilege at the time when he was sweating and the beams were on his shoulder and perhaps there were splinters, perhaps his bones were being raked over by the edges of those beams. But looking back, don't you think he was glad he did it? Don't you think so? Sure, if he had refused or if he had given up that day, someone else would have been found to do the job, right? God can always find someone to do the job, and so could the Roman Empire. But he didn't back out. And do you think he ever regretted not backing out? Do you think he ever regretted such an honor as being able to serve the Messiah in this way? I would hope not. In fact, I think the Bible gives us a hint that this was, in all likelihood, a spiritual watershed moment for this man named Simon from Africa. Because Mark tells us, we read it, no, we didn't read it this morning, but we almost read it, verse 21 of Mark 15, Mark tells us that Simon, this Simon, had two sons named Alexander and Rufus. 
You may go, well, why is Mark telling us that? How do they play into the story? Well, Mark just drops these two names, Alexander and Rufus, into the story with no further information about them. And the reason he does that is probably because Mark expected the people who first read his gospel would already know who Alexander and Rufus were. And so he just sort of tossed it in as an aside almost that, oh, by the way, this Simon is the same Simon who is the father of Alexander and Rufus. This is their dad. In other words, Simon's sons, Alexander and Rufus, were evidently well known to the Christians in that day, in the first century. Mark's readers must have known already who they were. And in fact, Paul also seems to refer to one of them in his letter to the Romans and to assume that the Roman church knew who at least one of them was as well. Because Paul refers in Romans 16 to a certain man named Rufus, who is a choice servant of the Lord. And so when you put Mark 15 together with Romans 16, it seems highly likely that what we're being told is that this African man had two sons who became well-known, well-respected Christians in the early church so that the people in Rome knew about them and so that the people who first read Mark's gospel knew about them. They were that kind of men, the sons of this Simon who carried the cross. And though we don't know for sure, it seems highly plausible that the reason Alexander and Rufus became such servants of the Lord was because their father, Simon, had encountered Jesus that day on the city streets and had carried his cross And having at some point come to faith in this Jesus, had looked back and considered this moment of standing in for Jesus and shouldering the load as his highest privilege. And I would simply ask you, do you think of your Christian service that way when it's hard? Do you consider it your highest privilege to do whatever it is you do in and around this building and for these people? whether it's large or small, difficult or seemingly insignificant? And would your children, watching and listening to you over the years, think that serving the Lord and his church was your highest privilege and joy? I hope that they would. I hope that especially for myself. And so I commend to you, Simon, for your imitation. Here was a man who stood in for Jesus, who did the work of God for Jesus' sake, and apparently was glad that he did so. And here is a picture of what every Christian really ought to be. So we've seen Barabbas the criminal as a picture of how Jesus stood in for us on the cross. And then we've seen Simon of Cyrene as a picture of how we ought to stand in for Jesus under the cross, shouldering the burden. And finally, I want you to consider the trading of places that Jesus prophesied to the daughters of Jerusalem. Daughters of Jerusalem. As Jesus went to the place of execution in verse 27, there was a large crowd following along, wasn't there? Some of them probably still frenzied and bloodthirsty, but others of them, particularly women, Luke tells us, who were mourning and lamenting them, lamenting him. But what Jesus says in verse 28 is essentially that they should stop being so concerned for him and that in point of fact, he is actually under great concern for them. And that's a kind of trade-off in and of itself. Don't you worry about me, he's saying. Let me be concerned about you. And he says, be concerned for yourselves. Weep for yourselves and for your children, verse 28. But why does he say that? Why was Jesus so concerned for these ladies? And why did he tell them to weep for themselves? Well, Because though he was the one who is suffering now, what he tells them is that very soon the tables will be turned. 
Very soon the places will be traded. Right now, it was Jesus suffering and the women grieving for him. But very soon, he would be the one grieving as these women and the rest of God's people were suffering. Verses 29 and 30. A great persecution was about to come upon the people of God. That's what Jesus is prophesying in those last verses. And this great persecution would mark a significant change in the strategy of Jesus' opponents. Up until this point, the chief priests and the scribes and the devil himself, all the opponents of Jesus, had mainly been concerned to strike Jesus, the shepherd, in order to scatter and grieve his people, the sheep. Their strategy has been strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But once Jesus is in heaven, verse 31, he tells us the strategy is going to change. The, revolt, the roles are going to reverse. And now in order to grieve the shepherd, they're going to begin to strike the sheep. They're going to begin to slaughter the sheep. And so do you see here we have a third exchange, a third trading of places with Jesus here in this chapter. On the cross, Jesus traded places with Barabbas. Under the cross, Simon traded places with Jesus. But after the cross, after the crucifixion, Jesus and his followers would swap roles once more. And the nature of that trade-off was that whereas before the cross and especially on the cross, Jesus suffered for his people, now he is prophesying that after the cross, his people will suffer for him. And this was painfully true as the early church suffered through great persecutions, first from the Jewish authorities in the book of Acts and then even more drastically later from the heavy hand of the Roman Empire. Jesus' prediction, Jesus' prophecy came true. So how can we summarize this third exchange, this final trading of places with Jesus in verse 23? I think the simplest way to say it would be that in the book of Luke, Jesus suffered for his people. But beginning in the book of Acts and continuing down to this day, the roles are swapped and the places are traded. In Luke, in the Gospels, Jesus suffered for his people. But ever since, Jesus' people suffer for him. Now, do you believe that? Second part, that Jesus' people are destined ever since the book of Acts to suffer for his namesake? Are you constantly aware that that remains true even down to this day? I hope that you are. I sincerely hope that you are fully aware and consistently mindful of your brothers and sisters in places like North Korea and China and Turkey and Vietnam and so many other places where God's people suffer constantly for the sake of the name. And I hope that you pray for them. And if you don't pray for them or if you want to pray more or more effectively, the Voice of the Martyrs monthly newsletter, I've told you about it before, would be a great place to start. It would be a free place to start. Learning how to pray. Learning about these people. There's information in the bulletin this morning about how you can sign up for that newsletter or just go to persecution.com, their website. You'd be truly amazed in reading that newsletter at how courageous God's people can be. And so I hope that you might just write them or email them and request it and open up the stories for yourself. And then once that newsletter's in hand, I hope that you might, like Simon, consider helping some of these struggling saints as they carry their crosses by financially supporting the ministries that are described inside, the mercy that this Christian group tries to pour out on those who are suffering for Jesus. So please heed the voice of Jesus in verse 28. Weep for yourselves. Weep for the church of God. 
Weep for his suffering among God's people and for their children. And as Jesus says, weep very specifically for yourselves. That's right. When we think about persecution coming upon the people of God, we ought to weep for ourselves. The question is, do you take seriously the possibility that you might at some point be persecuted and suffer for Christ's sake? Maybe it will be to a minor degree, being made fun of or thought approved or discriminated against at work or in the academic world. Or maybe the persecution will be such for some of us that in the midst of it, we will wish, verse 30, that the hills would just go ahead and collapse in on top of us because it would seem better to die than to live on and suffer so terribly at the hands of evil men in this world. But whether the difficulties are great or small, The question is, do you take seriously the biblical truth that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted? 2 Timothy 3.12. Do you take Luke 23, 28-31 to be for you and not merely for those ladies in Jerusalem so long ago? I hope that you take these words as being for you, and I'll give you one good reason why you should. Very simply, you should take verses 28-31 through as being for you because you took verse 25 as being for you. In other words, it doesn't make a good deal of sense, does it, to want to see ourselves trading places with Jesus like Barabbas did, but then to assume that we'll never actually be involved in an exchange like these daughters of Jerusalem experienced. You can't apply verse 25 to yourself and then skim over verses 27 through 31, can you? Biblical interpretation just doesn't work that conveniently. And so if we accept that Jesus suffered and died for us, we also have to be willing to accept the fact that we may have to suffer and even perhaps die for him. If we want to be like Barabbas, we have to also be willing to be like the daughters of Jerusalem. So do you see? We can't simply look for our own reflections in the portions of Scripture that seem advantageous to us. No, we must see that all Scripture is God-breathed. All of it is meant for our edification, including the passages like this one, where seeing our own faces in the crowd might be a little bit worrisome or even frightening. And so I just urge you to prepare yourself, not to flee from suffering for Christ's sake, but to be bold in your faith, to follow Jesus like these women all the way to the bitter end, to be willing to suffer for his name. I urge you not to shy away from being thought poorly of or mistreated or made fun of on account of your commitment to Jesus. And I urge some of you not to push away a calling that he may be laying upon your lives because it seems like it may be too dangerous for you. And I urge some of you who are older not to encourage your children to push away a calling that the Lord may be laying on their lives because it seems like it might be too dangerous. Suffering is part and parcel of the Christian life. That's what this passage is all about. Suffering on the cross Jesus suffered for us. And ever since the cross, it is our privilege that we may suffer for him.